Hello, and welcome to the WPHP Monthly Mercury, the podcast for the Women's Print History Project. My name is Kate Moffat, and I'm one of the co-hosts of the podcast alongside Candace Sharon. But I'm joined today by our primary investigator, Michelle Levy, to look back at all of our favorite anecdotes, puzzles, and problems relating to women's involvement in print during season one. prepare to launch season two of the WPHP Monthly Mercury next week, I wanted to take a moment to reflect upon season one, to consider the major insights we have gleaned by touring through some first season highlights. To that end, I've worked with Kate Moffat, co-host of the podcast, to assemble a series of greatest hits, if you will, about what we have learned in our first 10 episodes, with a bit of a teaser about what is to come. last few weeks, I've had the delightful task of re-listening to all 10 episodes. What follows is a series of observations about season one, with short excerpts from previous podcasts that illustrate these conclusions. The first observation I came to in listening to season one is that we read books. As a bibliographical database with over 12,000 title records, we are not in a position to read all of our titles, however much we may wish we could. We use the podcast, as well as our spotlights, as an opportunity to read, and to read books far beyond the canonical works that are usually taught and studied. We have heard about and heard excerpts read from Hester Malso-Chapone's Thoughts on the Education of Daughters and Catherine Cuthbertson's Romance of the Pyrenees, to just name a few. Some of my favorite moments of reading from season one include Candace's introduction to Charlotte Carolyn Richardson's 1818 poem, Harvest. For the author in 1818 and sold by a consortium of booksellers. And what a find it was! These poems are agricultural and political, linking the end of the Napoleonic Wars to a plentiful harvest. The opening two-part Georgic poem, Harvest, includes descriptions of abundance and joyful soldiers returning home after nine years of war, but it is also haunted by images of storms and frost. Other poems... Victoria DeHart, discussion of her discovery of Elizabeth Hayrick's 1824 pamphlet, Immediate, Not Gradual Abolition. Hayrick rattled the other abolitionists, and one of the more shocking things I learned was that some figureheads of the society, mainly William Wilberforce, tried to suppress the distribution of her pamphlet, Immediate, Not Gradual Abolition. Elizabeth Hayrick's use of print enabled boycotts, changed public opinion, and contributed to the end of colonial slavery. She also helped shape how future movements like the suffrage movement use print as a tactic for political reform. And Kate's attempt to provide a plot summary of Elizabeth Gwynard's novel, The Three Monks, exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point. Anyway, Kate, tell us about The Three Monks. Happy to. So, The Three Monks was set in the Italian town of Ferrara. 
and it follows three young boys all born on the same day in the same town. Silvino, the illegitimate son of Clementina, Domenico, born out of wedlock to Fancinetta, who claims to be his aunt to save her virtue, and Anselmo, a foundling discovered at the town's castle and adopted by the castle's duchess, Celesta. I have to say, I'm impressed that you've kept all these people straight. (laughs) I took notes. The Duchess had no children of her own. Her husband, the Duke, cared only about politics. Like, literally only about politics. His wife didn't impact the country, so he didn't care about his wife. Prior to their marriage, she had, in fact, been in love with the Duke's younger brother, Alonzo. So, I mean, it was doomed from the start. But Alonzo had, at the beginning of this tale, been missing for many years. Because the castle stood between Silvino's house and Dominico's house, the three boys grew up together, close and immediate friends, often to be found playing in the gardens behind the castle, and also, of course, in the subterraneous caverns beneath it, because you need subterraneous caverns. Anselmo was as golden as his hair, described by Silvino as gentle, Dominico thoughtful and smart, and described as a visionary by Silvino, and Silvino himself was fun, amiable, as the novel constantly tells you, and... <laughs> incredibly badly behaved. Silvino was eventually caught stealing from the Duchess by Fancinetta. So Fancinetta and the Duchess, the two mothers, so to speak, of Domenico and Anselmo, decided to send their two boys as far as possible from Silvino's terrible influence. They were sent to become monks at an abbey. As you do. (laughs) As you do. (laughs) What kind of punishment is there other than to become monks at an abbey? (laughs) And I can't resist... An excerpt of Kate and Candace reading Hannah Moore's Sinful Sally. Powdered well and puffed and painted, rivals all I there outshine, with my skin so white and heart so tainted, rolling in my chariot fine. In the park I glitter daily, then I dress me for the play, then to masquerade so gaily, see me, see me tear away. When I meet some meaner lass, then I toss with proud disdain, laugh and giggle as I pass, seeming not to know a pain. Still, at every hour of leisure, something whispers me within, oh, I hate this life of pleasure, for it is a life of sin. Thus, amidst my peals of laughter, horror seizes oft my frame, pleasure now, damnation after, and a never-dying flame. Save me, save me, Lord, I cry, save my soul from Satan's chain. Now I see salvation nigh, now I turn to sin again. Is it then some true repentance that I feel for evil done? No, tis horror of my sentence. Tis the pangs of hell begun. But a thousand ills o'ertaken see me now quite sinking down, till so lost and so forsaken, Sal is cast upon the town. At the dusk of evening gray, forth I step from secret cell, roaming like a beast of prey or some hateful imp from hell. My second observation about season one is that we love guests. Guests featured in five episodes from season one. They have included former and current research assistants who came on the podcast to talk about their work on the database. All of our current RAs appeared in episode three and Reese Irwin in episode four. We also heard extended interviews with three scholars who contributed to our knowledge of the women whose lives, works, and books we seek to capture. We were thrilled to talk with Dr. Carrie Andros about women's walking in episode eight, Dr. Betty Schellenberg on the blue stockings in episode nine, and Dr. Kate Osmond on Della Rivier Manley in episode 10. 
In what follows, we hear Dr. Schellenberg discussing Elizabeth Carter's many virtues and skills, including pudding making. She didn't, uh, you know, she seems to have stayed. She was perfectly willing to hang out with longtime female friends in Deal and Canterbury and just talk about silly things. And Mm. so I, I, yeah, I like the fact that, and, and maybe I'll, take the chance to just mention this famous quote by Samuel Johnson, who was a good friend of hers, who said something about, you know, Elizabeth Carter can make a pudding as well as she can translate Greek. And that's really kind of irritated a lot (laughs) for understandable reasons, right? Because it seems to be placing her into this domestic framework, even though she's such an accomplished intellectual. But I think you could look at it more charitably because they were good friends who respected Mm -hmm. each other. And I think maybe what he's saying is what I'm trying to say too, like that she was grounded. Mm -hmm. She was just kind of a real person. And Kate Osman on Manley's brilliant strategy to avoid libel charges in the early part of the 18th century. Libel is written, slander is That death, sounds right. Right? <laughs> yeah, libel. That sounds right. Libel and copyright are the only two things that ever get actually legislated. So if you are lying and somebody can prove it, they'll drag you into court and say you're lying. Now, if you're lying about Rich people, oh, they're definitely going to drag you into court because people actually care about rich people. And she's lying about very, she's not lying, about very rich people. So Manly actually gets arrested for the new Atlantis. And so the the secret history is not a genre without risks. Um, Here's my favorite part, though. Here's how she gets off. It's just, it's chef's kiss. Like, this is how good it is. She walks in and they say, hey, how did you learn all of this? You can't be saying this stuff. And she goes, oh, it's a work of fiction. And so as she sits there, the response is, if Churchill, let's just say Sarah Churchill, she wasn't the one who arrested her uh, because she's not a cop, <laughs> but uh, Churchill, it was implied that the Churchills were the reasons that Manly got arrested. Sarah Churchill would then have to come out and say, no, that's true for it to be proven as libel. <laughs> No, I did do this thing that you said that I did that I don't want to admit to that I'm mad about. That's exactly the, so her defense is, I didn't use any names. It's fiction. Are you telling me this is true? And they're like, no. No. (laughs) It's genius. It's very good. It's genius. That's what really made me fall in love with Manly. I was like, I have to write on you. She's brilliant. I have one more favorite moment which was during Reese Irwin's appearance in episode four, where she perhaps overshared in her description of what she had done to a print bibliography from SFU Library. Bibliographies, I followed that same process and I used a pencil to circle each entry with a woman's involvement or possible involvement to keep myself Ooh. going straight. And so I didn't get confused because oftentimes it was buried in the entry. Mm-hmm. Actually, the SFU copy of John Newberry and his successors is <laughs> now quite heavily marked up and the spine has completely cracked <laughs> from my consultations. It's funny. It's like I found this with the. Reese did redeem herself, however, in a superb description of what we are trying to do in the WPHP, suggesting that perhaps her sacrifice of the Newberry bibliography was for a good cause. Um, so Elizabeth's story 
it's kind of a perfect example of what the WPHP works so tirelessly to remedy, mm -hmm. which is women hiding in plain sight or pushed to the margins in favor of a neater male-centric story of lineage and economic prowess. Another common theme that emerges in season one is that we don't enter data, we create it. As many of the episodes have been used to explore our processes of collecting and verifying our records, the podcast has been an important attempt to offer documentation of our project methodologies and has offered a window into the labor that takes place behind the scenes to ver verify every one of our thousands of title, person, and firm records. I particularly like Candace's description of data collection and verification from episode one. In quite limited ways. So what we're doing is we're amalgamating different types of data that is scattered across dozens of different sources, many of which have specific limitations like genre, or they don't allow you to track information um, like a contributor's gender. So what our database is doing is it's pulling together all of this different type of information and making it available in one place. And Kate's discussion of how this research can correct and augment existing knowledge in her discussion of Anne Rivington from episode two. It says her active dates in the book trades were from 1786 to 1791. That's about a five-year window. Um, and it's worth noting because we originally had her in our database, according to those dates indicated by the ODNB. Um, but when we actually went back and started, I think Candace was, she went back for something to look at the different titles printed by her in the database and realized that her active dates went well beyond what the ODNB was suggesting. Part of the reason that that happened is... In discussing our processes, we also learn about the challenges we face in research on women's engagement with print and how our sources, as much as we rely on and have affection for them, don't make it easy. As we are drawing upon a diversity of sources, and as it is almost never possible to search by gender, discussions from season one often remind us of these challenges. We have Candace expressing her deep frustration about the end date of the English short title catalog. Um, Orlando has also allowed us to identify a number of titles after 1800, which is our biggest challenge because the ESTC ends in 1800. No! <laughs> Behind the scenes look at data entry post-1800. We have Reese describing her process of combing through print bibliographies of children's literature publishers looking for so women. So I began with the shortest bibliography, which was John Harris's Books for Youth, which I mm -hmm. think, you know, looking back was probably just a matter of, oh, this looks easy. Um, <laughs> Gotta start it somewhere. Had about, yeah. <laughs> It had about 300 entries that I had to read through and I look for the presence of a woman in all 300 entries. And we have Kate expressing her thrill in finding a solid block of text in a book trade index in which a female firm might be buried. Actually, William Sancho, all of this information is in his entry and more. It is a massive paragraph. It's, we checked, it's over a single spaced page. And Anne Sancho was hidden inside this massive paragraph, which 
to be honest, I always get really excited about big paragraphs like that for men because (laughs) I know that they often contain evidence of women's involvement somewhere. So I get really thrilled. Another observation about her work on the project that emerges strongly in season one, and that similarly references the labor involved in data creation, is that our data seeks to capture not only first or so-called important additions, but all additions produced with the involvement of women. In other words, there is no such thing as just a reprint, as one commenter on our site suggested, with some derision. We consider the work of finding bibliographical evidence of reprinting history essential to the recovery work the WPHP is attempting, as without it we lack an understanding of women's presence and influence in print. At the same time, there is no question that dealing with reprint history is laborious, as Candace and then Reese remind also us. Also wrote works, usually religious in their emphasis, for the lower classes, and many of these were printed in a series called the Cheap Repository Tracts, which were short, usually somewhere around 16 to 32 page pamphlets um, that were priced cheaply, which meant they could be widely distributed. Um, and this also means, as I believe I reference in my RA interview on the WPHP site, that they are a pain to find and date and add to the database. Um, because there were so many different editions. The last thing, this is kind of like an umbrella thing. We mentioned it earlier, just the vast amount of editions that had to that, uh, children's literature had. Just because the genre, it really gained ground in the latter half of the 18th and the 19th centuries um, as ideas about like children and childhood really began to solidify. I saw some titles with higher than 30 editions. More than a few cases were the title page of a certain edition. So let's say the sixth edition was used over and over Mm -hmm. again in subsequent print runs. So just the sheer amount of like recycling and the rapid production that went on. Indeed, we often lack reprinting history for major women writers. In working on women from Jane Austen to Anne Radcliffe, we have been surprised to find that their reprints have not been collected in existing sources. Our first episode of season one will discuss a similar issue we encountered in relation to Frances Burney, whose pre-1800 editions of Evelina and Cecilia were fully captured in our data, thank you, ESTC, but whose post-1800 editions were missing entirely. As we seek to uncover more and more bibliographical details about women's books and to capture more about their processes of authorship and bookmaking, we often find ourselves having made omissions and oversights in our data model, which we seek to remedy. In this way, the podcast serves as an oral history of sorts of the WPHP as we recount our mistakes and seek to adjust our data to account for what we are finding in the real world of women's books. Candace describes this process of learning as we go in episode one. How authors sign their names, what conventions for titles were, etc. Even just how long a volume was. So by sort of looking through all these books and refining our process, we started to realize some things were missing from the database. Um, And we ended up during that month-long fellowship adding a couple of different fields to our entries. So if you look at a title field or a title entry in the Women's Print History Project, you'll see we have a field for pagination and a separate um, field for the different firms involved in producing. 
In episode four, Kate likewise discusses limitations of our genre classifications. Our data model attaches only one genre to each title record, but as Candace has just pointed out, many of these works could reasonably fit within multiple. Books relating to education could fall under education, but they could also just as easily fit into juvenile literature, domestic, religion, spiritual, or essays, depending on their scope, approach, and intended audience. Some even count as novels. Indeed, This problem of limiting ourselves to one genre was noticed in a recent review of our project, which prompted us to re-examine our decision and indeed to change course by modifying our data model to allow for the addition of multiple genre tags for any given title. This freedom to change our mind is wonderful, but it leaves us with a daunting task of revisiting our 12,000 title records. Flexibility and adaptability, as we so often learn, come at a cost. Perhaps one of the most exciting moments of season one is a realization that, with our desire to capture women in print, we have found women everywhere writing and publishing about everything. It has been wonderful to converse with Dr. Carrie Andrews about the tradition of women in the mountains. Has always been there, you know. Carter's letters have always been there, but we haven't been able to access that, bring it together, and say, "Here is a body of work. This is our heritage. Look at what they've done." Um, and, I'm, I'm, and my book's got a really narrow methodology. There are hundreds more women out there who have walked for various purposes. There are so many more books that need to be written about this. I hope mine's just one of several that get written. Um, but bringing all of that together, starting to get a sense of a significant cultural weight that can drive things forward so that we no longer have to rely on men's accounts to shape and determine how we access the landscape, that we have access to these different points of view. Um, I think that's really important. But the fact that these women succeeded without being able to draw on that, um, I think that, that, that makes their stories even more incredible. To hear Kate discussing her discovery of the Black publisher and Sancho in her shop in Westminster. ...owned a book-selling business with her son, William Sancho, in London in 1807. I found her while I was combing through Ian Maxted's Exeter Working Papers in Book History website, looking for evidence of women involved in the book trades. Anne Sancho was tucked a couple of sentences deep in her son's entry, where an insurance policy from 1807 lists Anne and William Sancho of Castle Street, Leicester Square, booksellers. My own learning about the fiery speeches Mariah Stewart delivered in Boston in the 1830s denouncing the exploitation of Native and Black Americans at the hands of white colonists and slave owners. Mariah W. Stewart was a fascinating discovery for me in a number of ways. As an educated, free woman living in the Northeastern United States, Stewart's writing is very different than that of enslaved or formerly enslaved women like Mary Prince, who seek to describe firsthand the horrors of slavery. As a free woman, Stewart is witness to the pervasive racism within the North and can describe its deleterious impact on free men, women, and children. Her outspokenness about the causes and consequences of this racism radiates from every page. And Kate Osment discussing how Della Rivier Manley wrote her secret histories by being fed gossip from the court of Queen Anne. Um, so this, like, phase two is Scandal Writer Manly, and this is really where she makes a name for herself. 
So she gets all her gossip because she hangs out with the king's mistresses. And so she gets all the good court gossip. Wow. This is why it was so fun for me to watch The Favorite, because Robert Harley is her patron in this period. And Robert- Finally, and perhaps most importantly, as we wrap up season one, it has become apparent to me how much we have come together as a team of researchers this past year. The entirety of season one was produced during the global pandemic of 2020-2021, and hence necessarily through a period of physical separateness, or to use those loathsome words of social distancing. The WPHP has allowed us to be a part but not socially distanced, as we have worked as a team to learn more about the past and our own world. In episode seven, Kate talks about podcasting as a form of therapy. And on a number of occasions, we have used the podcast not only to learn about the past of women's world of print, but to reflect critically on how women's intellectual, creative, and physical labor of more than 200 years ago can help situate us in the world today. As we look forward to an opened up world in season two, we are grateful that we have had each other to think, work, and laugh with during this most unusual and challenging year.